Uh, I want you to imagine uh, that a friend becomes a Christian. Uh, They've not grown up in church. They've very little understanding of the Bible, but they've got the gospel. And they've got it right. They understand that ultimately Christianity isn't about what we do for God, but what he has done for us in Christ. That they come to you and say, look, it's amazing. I've just understood for the first time that, that Christ died for my sins and that he offers me completely free forgiveness. I understand that I don't have to work to keep my salvation, but ultimately Christ is going to keep me. He is the good shepherd and he will make sure I arrive safely home. I understand that I'm saved by grace alone. But, but I, I want to ask you now as my, my Christian friend, how am I meant to live? Okay, just give me three basics of the Christian life, what it means to be a Christian. What would you say to them? They say, look, three times we're going to go to Starbucks or Costa and we're going to sit down and I know the Bible is full of stuff, big book. But I just want you to tell me three things as a starter of of how I might live a Christian life. What would you say to them? What three things come to your mind? Just try it now in your head. Three three things. How do they live as Christians? They, They understand they're not trying to keep their salvation in a works way and they've got the gospel, okay? That they understand they need to keep repenting and believing, but just, just three, three things Christians do. How long would it take you before you got to, well, Christians are people who honour widows, uh, give church leaders double honour, uh, and work hard at their secular jobs. I suspect it would take a very long time. But my guess is what is in your head as you try and think of three things is something like read the Bible, evangelize, and go to small group. Maybe pray, I don't know. And yet Paul, writing to Timothy, a letter that is meant to help Timothy, the minister, to teach the congregation what the Christian life looks like. If you look at chapter 3 and verse 15, 14 and 15, these key verses for this letter. I hope they're in your head now, but perhaps one last time, let's just revisit them. Chapter 3, verse 14 and 15, Paul explains why he's written. I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Can't get there. I really care about the church in Ephesus, says the Apostle Paul. I want you to know how to live in the church. What does church life look like? How many times in the letter of 1 Timothy are we told to read the Bible? Zero. How many times are we to go to small groups? Zero. How many commands are there to evangelize? Zero. Now, that does not mean those things are bad. Okay, This sermon is not stop reading your Bible, stop evangelizing, and stop going to small group. Those are all good things to do. Clearly. But isn't it interesting that Paul highlights honour as the key characteristic he's trying to get across to this church in Ephesus? Uh, Verse 3 Honour widows. And a whole section follows on widows. Uh, Widows' children are those whose husbands have died. So women who've been Christians and then their, their husband has died. We're to honour widows who no longer have a husband to look after them. So honour widows, verse 3. Verse 17. Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honour. Honour elders, church leaders. Uh, chapter 6 and verse 1. 
Let all who are under a yoke as bond servants regard their own masters as worthy of all honour. That is a theme that binds together uh, this chapter. That's not everything that 1 Timothy has to say. But honour widows, honour church elders, and honour your boss in our kind of modern context uh, is a theme that Paul is hitting. And if we don't, remember the problem, if we don't, well, if we don't, the church is going to fail to be a pillar and buttress of the truth. If we don't live out the kind of life that Paul calls us to, then the church will no longer be able to hold up the gospel as a pillar holds up um, a roof. That is, our evangelistic witness will be diminished. We won't be as clear holding up the gospel to the world. And likewise, we won't even keep as good a grip on the gospel as we should. Buttresses hold stuff together, don't they? Buttresses are the things that come outside the building and keep it from sort of disintegrating, falling down. How you live doesn't just affect your witness, it affects your ability to, to keep a clear grasp on the gospel. If you stop living as Paul instructs, uh, then actually the, the truth will sort of disintegrate. Now clearly it's not that the gospel will cease to exist or something, but, but rather that our understanding of the gospel will just get weaker, less clear in our own minds. So we're going to think this morning very simply about honouring widows, honouring elders, and honouring masters. Let's start with the, the widows, verse 1 of chapter 5, all the way through to 16. Uh, sorry, 3 of chapter 5, all the way through to 16. Uh, 1 and 2, I should say, are sort of general instructions to Timothy, finishing off what we looked at last week. How is he to treat the different groups in the church? But our focus this morning are going to be on the widows, the elders, and the masters. So the widows. Honour, verse 3, widows who are truly widows. Now, straight away, we may be thinking, well, okay, Paul, that's a letter to Ephesus, but honestly, Christchurch Central, we do not have any widows. Now, this is not the most relevant teaching for us. Let me say two things by way of response. First of all, illustration. Children, when your uh, mum or dad goes food shopping to Asda, okay, or the delivery man brings it from Asda, and all the food comes in, you bring it in, in in bags from the car, or it gets put on the table, do you eat it all at once? Okay, do you eat all the food? No. What do you do with it? Save it, exactly. You put it in the cupboard, don't you? Store it up. Uh, some in the fridge, some in the freezer, some in the cupboards. You store it up, and then you, you eat it, or well, maybe in a week's time or two weeks' time. God's, God's word is like food. It's like honey, Psalm 19 tells us. It's the word of God. It's the bread that feeds us. Sometimes part of God's word is the kind of food that we're actually saving up for later. There are, at the moment, no widows in Christchurch Central. But there will be. And so we need to save up, save up this teaching for the future. And the irony, if we were to just think, well, verses 3.16 are a bit dull for us. The irony would be we're falling into exactly the problem that has caused Paul to write 1 Timothy. Uh, He he doesn't just pick random issues. If you read the different letters, he addresses different topics in each letter. So so for him to address how uh, the Ephesians are are, are, uh, to treat widows implies that at the moment they're not doing a very good job of it. So if it's Christchurch Central, we'd read this and think, oh, boring, irrelevant. There's a slight danger we're going to fall into the same trap as the Ephesians. So what are we to do, widows? Let's stock the cupboard for when we are facing this issue more directly. Uh, very simply, Timothy is told, I think, to, to, to enrol them on a list and to provide for them. Uh, that's what honour looks like. Uh, to create a list of these widows, verse 9, let a widow be enrolled and to then provide for them. 
But there's a few provisos, a few conditions. Uh, you see it implied in verse 3. Honour widows who are truly widows. There are widows and there are widows, says Paul. And one says anyone who's lost their husband is a widow, but not everyone is to go on this list that Paul is talking about. So, so what are the, the categories? Well, first of all, that the widows who the church are to care for are those who have no one else to look after them. Uh, three times we're told that first and foremost, it is the family, that's the biological family, who are to look after uh, widows. Verse 4, if a widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn how to show godliness to their own household and to make some return to their parents, for this is pleasing in the sight of God. Again, children, how much of your money goes to buying the shopping? Uh, how much of your money goes to buying your clothes? How much of your money goes to buying uh, toys, buying the house? Very little, I'd expect. And so, Paul says, when your parents get older, and particularly in that context, if dad dies first and mum's not working, mum's got no income, we are literally to pay them back. We are to make a return to our parents. Now, this is very directly relevant to many of us. Many of us will have parents who are getting older. Our responsibility is to care for them. The likelihood is that, that money has flowed downhill for however many years. Okay, they've looked after you as a child, and they've clothed you, fed you, housed you, perhaps they've helped with your university education. If you went to uni, they might have chipped in for your first car, they furnished your house, whatever it might be. Well, it's very practical, isn't it? Make some return, verse 4. First and foremost, it is family who are to care for family. And it's serious, verse 8. If anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. It's pretty strong, isn't it? Worse than an unbeliever. And then down there, uh, at the end of, uh, of this section, uh, verse 16, if any believing woman has relatives who are widows, let her care for them. Let the church not be burdened so that it may care for those who are truly widows. We've seen throughout Timothy that there's a bunch of false teachers around uh, and their clearest teaching seems to be in chapter 4 and verse 1. We looked at last week where uh, they, they, they are teaching seemingly bizarrely uh, in verse 3 uh, that we shouldn't marry and we should abstain from certain foods. Uh, they're, they're teaching that marriage is a, a bad thing, it's an sort of Old Testament creation sort of thing, not a good thing, not for the spiritual. And also certain foods are not to be eaten. We don't know what foods, perhaps meat, who knows. And, and we've seen that what underlies their teaching, really all the way through the letter, is that their, their creed, if you like, their, their, their mantra on their posters would be, would be the slogan, get rid of the garden, the Garden of Eden is, get rid of the garden. Those things that God created, they're not really good. So Paul makes an, a, a, a real effort in verse 4 of chapter 5, to hammer home that Genesis 1 and 2 still stand. Everything created by God is good and not to be rejected. Marriage is good. Food is good. Anything created by God is good. And, and when he turns to chapter 5, and he moves straight on from talking about the goodness of creation to how we should care for, for our families. You can see there could easily be a link. That the false teachers may well be teaching, well look, family, because family is just what marriage creates, that's just the old you. Now you're a Christian. Now you're spiritual. Now you're part of the household of God. 
it's your, your physical sort of biological family or adopted family, whatever it might be, they're no longer a concern for you. Paul says, no, that the family still stands. The family still stands. There are ultimately three kings. God sets up three kingdoms, three institutions, if you like. We create loads. You've got a sports club, you've got schools. We've got loads of institutions in Leeds, haven't we? God sets up three institutions. And therefore, only three really, really matter. Uh, the first is the family in Genesis. You know, he, God sets up the family. It's not a human invention. It hasn't just sort of evolved. God sets up the family. Man and woman uh, united in marriage. Two become one, and they produce children, family. Uh, the second is the church. Christ is the head of the church. That is a God-created institution. And the third is the state. Now, it's not that God made England, Wales, Scotland, France, USA, whatever, but rather God instituted human government. Now, that's not just something we invented. So think of Romans 13, where Paul, Paul says that God puts rules in place, therefore we're to honour them. So three institutions that God made. And, and, and the trouble always comes when, when one of those institutions, one of those kingdoms, tries to seize power from another. So, for example, sometimes the church tries to go beyond its, sort of, its kingdom, the powers that God has given it, given her, I should say, and take power in the world. You see it in Roman Catholicism, where the, the Pope, historically, very often has commanded kings uh, to obey his will. There's a period in England uh, from, I think it was 1207 to 14, where the Pope at the time, King John was King of England, the Pope at the time, uh, didn't like what John was doing. John was trying to meddle in the church. The Pope didn't like it. So the Pope banned all church services in England for seven years. For seven years in England, you just could not go to church. They wouldn't bury you. Uh, you, you, you just, nothing. They wouldn't marry you. You just could not have a church service in England for seven years. Until eventually, King John had to grovel before the Pope, bow the knee before the Pope. And the Pope started saying what wars John ought to fight, where he ought to send his troops and all the rest of it. That's an example of the, the church taking power in the state, in the country, which is just not our job. That's crossing boundaries. Uh, equally, the family can try and steal power from the church. Uh, I met someone a few months back who is at another church and he said, look, I, at our church we, we don't baptise the babies, the, the ministers don't believe in that, but I want to baptise my children so I think I might do it myself. He's not a minister, he's not an elder in the church, he's got no authority in the church, he just thought he'd do it himself in the bathtub. Well, no, he hasn't got the right to do that. He's not been given authority, he is head of his family, head of his household, but he's not been given authority in the church. He's not got the right to, to administer the sacraments, baptism, Lord's Supper, these sort of things. He, he, it's just not given to the family. Sometimes the state transfers and tries to sort of sneak in and take power. This is something that we need to be very aware of going forward. Uh, ultimately, whose job is it? Uh, who, who do your children belong to, rather? Who, who, who do your children belong to? The Bible is very clear. Children belong to their parents. It is up to the parents how children are disciplined, educated, uh, not the state, but increasingly the state wants to say, no, first and foremost, it is our job. Our parents might decide, okay, we want to use the state schools, whatever, that's fine. But uh, with laws coming in, banning smacking, for example, uh, in Wales at the moment, already banned in Scotland, uh, that is the state sticking its fingers into the family's world. And now, why that sort of detour? Well, that is what I think is going on in the minds of these teachers in 1 Timothy. It seems to be they are saying that it is the church's job to care for widows and the vulnerable. And Paul says, just a minute, the family, the family is the first port of call for this kind of help. And if you don't help, 
your family, and especially the widows, the vulnerable, verse 8, you are worse than an unbeliever. You've denied the faith. Let's get really practical about that. What does that mean? Many of us now are very mobile. Okay, in days gone by, you lived in your village, you grew up in your village, you worked in your village, you died in your village. And so your parents lived with you. Uh, now that's not the case. Many of us move around for work or to study, and we live away from our parents. And it makes these sort of things harder. But our responsibility, if we're younger and we've got ageing parents, our responsibility is to care for them. Uh, let's say you've got non-Christian parents. Many of us will be in that situation. Non-Christian parents. And we, you know, we're praying for them. We're trying to give them fantastic books, perhaps, or invite them along to things and take opportunities at the dinner table where we visit to, to speak of Christ. And you know, we're really hoping that they're, they're going to get saved. Uh, meanwhile, it is our non-Christian brother who is the one who always goes when they're rushed into hospital. It's our non-Christian sister who mows the lawn for them. It's our, our non-Christian siblings who are doing most of the actual caring for, for them. Well, worse is Paul, you're just completely undermining your witness. Worse than an unbeliever if you're not caring uh, for your family. Our first criteria for going on this list, therefore, is widows who do not have family caring for them. Uh, secondly, they have to have a good standing. Now, this perhaps does surprise us. Uh, a number of times through the passage, Paul talks about the kind of character the widow who's going to be cared for by the church financially is to have. Uh, verse, ten, or sorry, verse 9. Uh, not less than 60 years of age, we'll come back to that. Having been the wife of one husband, it doesn't mean she can't have married again if her husband died. It just means that she hasn't been having affairs, running around left, right and centre, marrying anyone she fancies and uh, leaving her former husband. Having a reputation for good works, bringing up children, showing hospitality, washing the feet of the saints, care for the afflicted, devoting herself to every good work. I think it's just a summary way of saying, look, this is a Christian woman who's been living a Christian life. Those are your first port of call when you're caring for people, says Paul. Isn't that interesting? Might you not have expected Paul to say, just love everybody, care for everybody, any widow who comes to you, use the church resources to look after them. And yet he doesn't. We might even think Paul's a bit harsh. Come on, love everybody. Well, no, says Paul. I, I suspect he's, he, he doesn't just do that general call for two reasons. First of all, like any church in the entire of history, the church in Ephesus is going to have limited resources. It's true of us as well. We, we, there's just no bottomless pit of money to care for everybody in the world. Think of Jesus' word, the poor you will all have, always have with you. Okay, you are not going to solve the problem of poverty. You're not going to solve the problem, sadly, of widows in poverty. It doesn't mean you don't care. It's just realism. So how are you going to decide how you allocate your money? Every week, the collection we take at church is used exclusively for what you might call this kind of diaconal ministry, caring for those in need. Not just widows, poor, those sort of things. Um, some outside the church, in, in terms of brothers and sister Christians in the Middle East who are persecuted, uh, some inside the church. But there, there is in our bank account, therefore, a bunch of money allocated for this kind of use. How do we decide who to use it for? Well, these are the kind of criteria. And the first port of call is the family of God. Those, in this case, widows who've lived Christian lives. I think the other reason there's a, there's a condition on it is to stop uh, family members abusing the system. Oh, well, we don't need to bother giving money to, to mum to look after her because the church will pick it up. No, that's not how it works. So this woman has to have good standing. And thirdly, she has to be of a certain age. Verse 9, it's over 60 
Now, um, I don't think Paul is saying that it is always wrong to support a 59-year-old woman, okay, a 59-year-old widow. Uh, all these rules, if you made them really wooden, they, 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 don't, they don't quite work. Okay? They are, they are like guidelines, principles to help you work out who to support. Okay, so if, if, yeah, if your husband dies at 59, please do come and ask for help. But, but the age thing is there really because, well, because younger than that, Paul expects uh, the widow to go and remarry. Almost everyone married in that culture, it was very, very rare to deliberately stay single or even to remain single. Um, almost everybody married. So there, there is a somewhat of a cultural difference there. I'm aware there will be people among us who would like to have got married but haven't yet. And, and some of us may never marry. Uh, Paul is not making marriage mandatory, as if you're not being truly godly unless you marry. Elsewhere in 1 Corinthians 7, he has a very high view of singleness. But here, right into these Ephesians, uh, he does uh, instruct younger widows, verse 14, to marry. And basically to live out the kind of life that was set up in the Garden of Eden, honouring that creation reality. Uh, We've said that if the false teachers say, get rid of the garden... Forget marriage, forget food, being good, all that sort of stuff. Paul is saying grace restores nature. As you're born again, that restores you to be the kind of people you were created to be. You're not made into this new thing as a Christian. No, you're made to be what you were always meant to be all along. Grace restores nature. And so a godly woman, well, verse 14, describes how she's to live. It's just, it's immensely politically incorrect, isn't it? Verse 14, I would have younger widows marry, have children, Look after the household, and therefore give the adversary, Satan, no cause for slander. Is it wrong for a woman to have a career? No. No. Now we see in Proverbs, for example, the, the, the sort of idealised picture of a woman, Proverbs 31. Uh, the woman is bringing in an income. She's working in various ways. But is it the case that for married women, the default understanding of, of their primary role, hear that word primary, doesn't mean only, but primary role, whilst looking after children, is that the, 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 the child raising rests with the mum, whilst the dad is doing, if you like, the sort of outside the house work. I just think you have to say it is. I know that is not popular. I know that is not culturally uh, acceptable. But I think it's very hard to get round it being biblical. And actually, to put it more positively, that the Bible just has an incredibly high view of motherhood. Sometimes, you know, you, people say, you know, say to a mum, what, "What do you do?" And the answer comes, "Oh, I'm just a mum." If they're not in sort of full-time employment, no such thing as just a mum. Motherhood is is such an honourable profession in the Bible. So again, please don't mishear this. And, and this is not saying if you're a mum who has a job, you're going against the Bible. Not at all. But what Paul is saying is the responsibility, the responsibility for bearing children, then looking after them, managing the household, is given to these women. Therefore, if you're younger, remarry and get back to that pattern set in the Garden of Eden. That's why it's the older widows who are to be cared for. Uh, now, that something is obviously going on in Ephesus. It's, I think it's quite hard to understand exactly what's going on with these, these some women in verses uh, 
11, 12, 13, who've wandered away. It might be that Paul is saying, look, if you bring older, sorry, younger women onto this list and start providing for them financially, the younger ones, you know, 20-year-olds, 30-year-olds, whatever, actually, they are going to, if they come on and say, look, I promise to stay single and just sort of serve the church and pray and all the rest of it, they're not going to be able to keep that. So they will break their word and go back and get married. They won't be able to resist getting married. So it's just pointless bringing it onto the list. Don't do that. It might be, alternatively, that Paul is saying, look, actually, um, th- th- there's a bunch of women in, in Ephesus who, who, are, who are, when they're widowed, going and marrying non-Christian men and getting drawn away from the faith. I don't know. But either way, he's saying, don't give the financial support to the younger widows, rather the older, more vulnerable. Honour widows. I heard a story just the other week of a a church in America, in California, now a very big evangelical church. Uh, and it was the, the whole building, the whole complex was built uh, with the money from one incredibly rich man. And the reason he built the church uh, was that as a young man uh, in the 50s, uh, it, when he was very young, a child, his father died. Okay, so his mother was widowed and he was just a, a very young child. But he remembers that the uh, men from the church that they attended at the time, coming round and literally building a house for his mother. He remembers the church stepping up and providing everything for them when they had nothing. And he, he prayed as a boy, a young boy, to God, Father God, please make me a rich man. You build a house for me. Please give me the money to build a house for you. Decades and decades later, he's built this house huge church in California, uh, where many are coming to faith. The point of all this, of course, is to care for the widows, but ultimately it's to give a good witness to the gospel. This is how we're to live in the household of God. Honour widows. I'm going to be much quicker on the last two categories, because uh, I, I suspect thinking about widows is something we don't do very often. Uh, Honour widows. Secondly, honour elders. Uh, this is verses 17 through to the end of the chapter. Strange phrase, isn't it? Let the elders who rule be considered worthy of double honour. Uh, who, who's being honoured here? Well, the elders are the, the church leaders. Some are called uh, overseers, uh, earlier in 1 Timothy. And particularly here, it's the elders uh, who rule well. Especially those who labour in preaching and teaching. What you get in that verse is just a hint of a, a bit of a distinction. There's only one category, elder. But some give their lives to preaching and teaching. Now, within kind of Presbyterian churches, historically, therefore, you've referred to some, teach, some elders as teaching elders and some as ruling elders. All of them rule. All of them are given equal um, authority in the church, equally bear the burden for caring for the church, but some are particularly set aside, perhaps their full-time job, as it were, to teach and preach. We need to appoint elders at Christ Church Central, but we don't need to appoint a huge staff team to do that. Most elders will be, well... Normal men in the church with full-time jobs uh, outside of the church context. Uh, All are to be honoured, but especially those who have given their lives to preaching and teaching, what we often call the minister, although that's not a particularly uh, particularly common term in the New Testament. Uh, What does it mean to give them double honour? Paul's talking about a couple of things, I think. Uh, First of all, it is the same financial uh, honour that is given to widows. Uh, that's explained by verse 18. 
Why should we give these elders double honour? For, the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain and the labourer deserves his wages. Paul quotes two verses, one from Deuteronomy and one from Luke. Interesting, by the way, that Paul calls Luke's gospel scripture. The labourer deserves his wages is something Jesus says in Luke. So Paul knows Luke's gospel and says it's scripture. It shows how early Luke's gospel was written, because Paul's executed in the 50s. So, uh, both those verses, uh, although at first sight, the first one looks unpromising territory, both those verses tell us we're meant to pay gospel workers, okay, ministers, if you like. Uh, in the, the ox verse from Deuteronomy, verse 18, uh, when, you, when you've got your harvest, you put all the grain on the floor, crops on the floor, and you get the, the oxen to trample on it, big, heavy oxen to stamp all over the grain, to crush it up. And there was a law in Deuteronomy that said you shouldn't put a, a muzzle over the ox so that the ox could eat some of the grain, keep itself going while it's doing its work. It's not a very flattering comparison with church leaders, is it? They're like oxen. But don't muzzle them. Provide for them financially so they don't have to worry about earning a, enough money to, to, to keep themselves going. And they can give themselves fully to this Bible teaching ministry. And that's part of the reason that if you're a member here, you, you need to give to Christchurch Central in order that we might now and in the future be able to pay some to do the preaching teaching uh, ministry. Uh, but it's not just financial. Uh, there's also the, the, the uh, respect entitled in that word, it's, sorry, contained in that word, honour. Uh, when you honour an elder, it, it means that you are slow to accuse them, grumble against them. Verse 19, do not make a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. Now, I've got to say the experience of being minister at Christchurch Central is a very pleasant one. I've got no complaints financially or elsewhere. But we all know that in churches it can be the case that people just start grumbling against the minister. Uh, or the elders, or the church leadership, whatever you're calling them in your context. Well, Paul says just hold back, Timothy. If one person comes to you and says, kind of, look, Timothy, you know, people are saying that, that Bob is a very angry man. Don't accept that. People are saying that. Doesn't that happen to all the churches? People are saying that. No, no, I need evidence. I need a couple of witnesses, at least. Two or three. Again, it's an Old Testament principle brought into the new. Uh, Honour them by not believing any rumour and slander against them. But, of course, you do need to act if they are sinning. Elders are not above the law. They're not these kind of special class of people. Verse 20, as for those who persist in sin, this is the elder who is sinning in a big way and not repenting. You've had a quiet word with him, but he hasn't stopped. And rebuke them in the presence of all, so the rest may stand in fear. If an elder is doing something really wrong, then, and he's refusing to stop, then actually with everybody there, the whole church there, announce, Bob has been doing this, and therefore he's no longer an elder. In order to make us realise the seriousness of sin, the bar is raised for elders. Yes, they might be given honour, double honour, but therefore double responsibility uh, too. Uh, that's why Timothy is to be slow to make elders. Verse 21, in the presence of God and of the elect, I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging, doing nothing from partiality. Okay, don't be prejudiced either in favour or against the elders, Timothy. Just be, just be honest and truthful. Don't be hasty in the laying on of hands, verse 22. Don't be too quick to make people formal elders in the church. So one of the reasons we haven't appointed elders yet at Christchurch Central, because you just need time to get to know people. Don't be too quick. If you are too quick, Timothy, you'll end up being taking part in their sins. You put the wrong man into ministry, and actually you're going to bear responsibility. So imagine Timothy just ordains someone. That's the laying on of hands, calling them to ministry, ordains someone. 
who doesn't know very well, and that man turns out to be abusive and drunkard, well, people are going to start saying, yeah, that guy, Bob, the, the nasty elder, Timothy made him an elder. So Timothy gets brought in and stained uh, by Bob's sin. Uh, verse 22, uh, sorry, 24. The sins of some people are obvious, conspicuous, going before them to judgment. But the sins of others appear later. That's true for all of us and true of elders too. Children, I want you to imagine someone came in wearing this, okay? Here we go. So they had a big one of these around their neck. Yeah, they were where I walked in this morning. Would you trust someone wearing that? Okay, no, you wouldn't. Would you? You'd know straight away to keep away from them. Something is wrong. Something is bad with them. And Paul says, some people are like that. Straight away, you can tell there's something wrong. But other people, at first glance, they look okay. But actually, for, for other people, it's a bit like this. It, it, at first glance, they kind of look okay. Look, I look a nice person, don't I? I look a good person, you know, friendly person, godly person. But actually... You know, hidden in the pocket, hidden away where you can't quite see, are exactly the same warnings, exactly the same sins. But you just can't see because at first glance, they're hidden. They were there, but hidden, not stuck on our front. Therefore, get to know people before you bring them into ministry. Uh, Honour elders. Uh, You can understand this is, in some ways, particularly an Englishman in our culture, we're very gauche, it's quite hard to preach on. (laughs) But it is the church member's responsibility to give due honour to those who are leading the church. They will not be perfect uh, by any means. Uh, That's why verse 15 of the chapter 4 is so encouraging. Timothy is told to practice these things, immerse yourself in them, so all may see your progress, your teaching and your life. It's just progressing. It's not perfect, but it's progressing. And nobody is perfect. That's why in the catechism that we read early, earlier, great little lines as honouring those in authority. Uh, the, uh, in the service sheets there, bear patiently with their infirmity, since it is God's will to govern us by their hand. It is God's will to teach the church through ministers who will be imperfect and sinful and make mistakes. But try and make their lives easy. The Bible is full of commands to honour uh, your elders. And then lastly, in verse 6, 1 to 2, we're to honour our earthly masters. Now, the next series we're going to do at Christchurch is going to be thinking about work, vocation, our callings, that sort of thing. So we're not going to spend time on verses 1 and 2 of chapter 6 today, other than to notice that, again, we're to honour those in authority over us. Uh, because if they're not Christians, we need to show that the gospel doesn't make us bad workers. And if they are Christians, we, we shouldn't sort of say, oh, well, he's a Christian, so I'll go slack. You know, he's going to have to let me off because he's got to forgive no, no, work hard, whoever is your master. I guess you could apply that to earthly employment, to, to secular employment. People don't want to think the Christians are the kind of the wasters who don't work hard. You could apply it to your studies. You don't want your teachers or your professors thinking, oh, it's the Christians, you can't really be bothered. Uh, when I was at university, often there was a problem with people getting so involved in the Christian union that they just didn't really study very hard and would get poor degrees because they were doing so much Christian union work, they weren't actually uh, giving themselves to their calling to be good students. Well, no, says Paul, work hard. And the purpose of all this is that Christ might be honoured. This is how we hold up the truth of the gospel. When Jesus speaks to the disciples before he goes to the cross, the last night, how will the world know that the gospel is true? What does he say? Well, by the power of your preaching, Peter, no. By the zeal of your evangelism, Thomas, no. They will know that you love me and that I am in you. How? By the way, you love one another and serve one another. How we treat one another is not just giving us a good time in the church, rather it's a witness to the world around. Wouldn't it be great if Christians were known to be the people who really care for their mothers? When you invite your friends around for dinner, 
They say, oh, you know, who's sat in the corner? Oh, that's mum. We brought into her house. You know, dad died and she's lonely and we, we, we want to care for her. Rather than the kind of worldly attitude of, well, she's just going to get in the way. It's going to limit our ability to go on holiday. We'll lose a spare room. It means the kids will have to share. And that'll speak volumes about our love and our care. Wouldn't it be great if it worked? Uh, the junior new staff member uh, was told by someone who'd been there a few months longer, oh, if you're stuck, why don't you go and talk to Sam? Uh, and the junior staff member said, well, he's, you know, he's senior, I can't go talk to a senior. They said, no, no, yeah, but he's a Christian, so I know he's five ranks above us, but he'll take the time to help you out. That'd be a great commendation of the gospel. How you act holds the gospel up and holds it together. And ultimately, we do all these things in order to honour Christ and to God. It is God who cares for widows and therefore wants to do so through his church. It is God who cares for his people and therefore wants to do so through elders. It is ultimately even God who wants the world, our neighbours, to flourish and does through so through human work. Honour is a key characteristic. So you sit down with your, cof- your coffee and your newly converted Christian friend. Yes, it's good to read the Bible. Yes, it's good to go to a small group. But actually there are far more verses in scripture about honouring widows honouring church leaders and honouring secular authorities than there are about reading the Bible for yourself, going to small group and even doing evangelism put together. Those things are good things to do, but actually there are zero commands in Scripture, for example, to actually read the Bible, mainly because for most of history people didn't have Bibles and couldn't read. Lots to meditate on it and listen to it, but zero to read it. Small groups, good idea, good way of talking and praying for one another, not commanded. Even do evangelism. It's quite hard to find a command to Christians that actually says, you individually must go and do evangelism. The church must do evangelism, but individual commands are quite hard to find. By extension, we want people to be saved, so we do it. And it, So again, I'm not saying don't do these things. But it's just interesting that those are the first things our mind goes to. Whereas there are far more commands in Scripture, even about caring for widows, which probably never even comes to our mind. More commands about honouring elders, which is just a kind of, yeah, fine, whatever. More commands about our earthly masters. Let's pray that our church is shaped by God's word and not by our own cultures. Let's pray. Uh, Our Father, we praise you that uh, you save us into a family, a household of God, and we ask that in your mercy you make us people who reflect Christ's image, give us love for those in need, and make us those who care for those who are vulnerable. And we pray that we would be a community full of honour. And we pray this so that the world might see the glory of Christ in his church. The the world might come to believe that we have a great redeemer and saviour. We pray these things, therefore, so that Christ's household, his family, might extend from shore to shore until the earth is filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Uh, Do that through your spirit, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.